With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And welcome to episode number 80 of Artificial Turf Wars, where goodbye is the hardest word to say. I am your host, Greg Wisniewski, and I am joined this week by Joshua Housem. Josh? Hey. So, we come to this podcast in an unusual state. Uh, we come to it with heavy hearts. Just yesterday, Roy Halladay, who all of you would know as a Blue Jays legend, and, and most of you have fond memories of, um, passed away rather suddenly in a plane crash, um, the plane that he was, in fact, piloting. Um, off the coast of Florida in the Gulf of Mexico. So we're just going to spend the podcast talking about why Halliday was something very different, both in, in the world of, of baseball in Toronto for us, and then maybe in the world of sport in general, and why he was so appreciated. And uh, we're also going to tell some stories about uh, that you have for us about times you've met Halliday or, or things that stood out to you. Uh, and we're going to talk to Scott Crawford of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, where Roy was inducted just this last summer. Uh, I'll turn it over to you, Josh, because, uh, you know, you're obviously a big fan, but also a, a, a baseball player at heart. And, uh, you know, what did Roy Halliday mean to you? Well, it's very interesting that we start with that because if you consider when I was like the most active as like a potential pro baseball player, it was the early 2000s. And as a Toronto based player and a Blue Jays fan, there was nobody that you could look up to more than Roy Halladay. He was the star. He was the best among the very best in the world. But in particular, Holiday resonated with me because, well, I, I never had his level of command or anything close to what he was. Here was a guy who had all the hype and potential in the world and failed miserably to the point where he still has the record for the highest ERA ever for someone who threw 50 or more innings in a season. But he was able to come back and learn how to become great. And for me at that time, I had all the tools. I had the 93 mile an hour fastball. I had a good changeup. I had a curveball that was okay, but I needed to work. I needed to get better. Seeing a guy who could be that good and that bad and then that good again gave me hope that I could do that. Mm-hmm. And certainly uh, the word work comes up a whole lot when you talk about Roy Halladay. Yeah, I mean, it's if there's anything that's going to inspire you, it's seeing how hard he worked and how that hard work can get you to that next level. If that was actually something that our coaches even instilled in us, like, look at this guy, you know, there's nothing that you're going to ever see when it's not a game other than him working out. He's going to be on the stairs. He's going to be in the gym. He's going to be trying everything he can to be the best. And that's what they basically demanded of us. And, you know, as coaches, that's kind of their job. But as players, when you see a guy in your own town doing that, 
it means a lot. And it, it actually really resonates with you because you're seeing it every single day. It's not, hey, Justin Verlander or Pedro Martinez. It's that guy that you're seeing every five days. And so we put it to heart. And then because of that, he became more than just, you know, the next Jimmy Key or Dave Steeb. He was like the guy. He was like, he, he was the one that you rooted for and pulled for and you loved seeing him in a Blue Jays uniform every day. Absolutely. Um, for me, I, like I, as I mentioned several times, I took, I took a hiatus from baseball, right? So I have, I'm well acquainted with the World Series years and then I returned to baseball at some point in 2007. And Roy Halladay, by that point, was a known commodity. Uh, but he was also an absolutely 100% bankable pitcher. You, you could guarantee that you would see quality from Roy Halladay every time he stepped on the mound. And that was at a point, again, in, in the late 2000s, where there, you know, Pedro was had faded. Uh, Roger Clemens had been through a bunch of of scandals and, and everything else, and, and a lot of guys who were big in the early two thousands were fading in their careers. And it was Roy's absolute, the center of his his peak. So I was just, I I don't remember anyone in the nineties being anything like the consistency that Halliday put out there. And that impressed me from like the very first time I, I watched him. And all I ever thought when Halliday's turn was coming up with these teams that would struggle to win 85 games was I don't want to miss this because he might throw a no hitter tonight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the way he came onto the scene, his second start. And I was there, I, I was there with my family. It was the last game of the season and a nothing year, although they won 88 games, but they were still nowhere close to a playoff spot. And they were playing the worst team in baseball, the Tigers. But it was the last game of the year. They always do fun things. So we went. And we happened to see this guy, Roy Holiday, pitching. And he threw one of the greatest games you're ever going to see. Eight and two-thirds, no hit, no walks. It wasn't a perfect game at that point because Felipe Crespo doesn't know how to play second base. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Higginson did what he always did against the Jays and broke our hearts. But it was very clear that we were seeing something special right from the beginning. And he carried that aside from that brief blip until the end of his career. I, I think that probably the way his career ended surprised me more th than anything else was that a guy who worked so, so hard to be physically at his peak 100% of the time wasn't able to stop his body from betraying him eventually his his shoulder just wouldn't do the things that it was supposed to do despite of i know he gave it a lot of punishment but i also know he gave it you know as much care as you possibly can when you're a major league pitcher and i think there was a lesson there too that you know you you can't just go on forever and you can't you can't control how you fade away or how, how you go out but that he was still trying right up until his very last start to make something out of the diminished tools that he had. Yeah, and, and there's a story. I, I wish I could remember who said it. It was someone from that Phillies team that... It was Michael, on his, 
Michael Young. Michael Young. That's right. That even on his very last start, everything was hurting. But he didn't want to come out of the game because he was a guy who believed that he could do this and he should do this. And everything about him was, I want to do this for my team. I don't care if I'm hurting. I'm still a major league pitcher. And, you know, that idea that he was part of a team and he was trying to get somewhere didn't, you know, a lot of players seem to go through a phase where it's about them. And then they realize as they get on their careers, hey, it can't be all about them if they really want to win a championship. They need to, you know, they need to make some sacrifices. They need to change their focus a little bit. Um, You know, maybe they need to be more helpful to their teammates or whatever. When, When Doc threw his perfect game, he bought 60 inscribed watches for all of the people you know, in the clubhouse and on the team at that point and said, we did this. They, they were inscribed with the box score and a bunch of things, but also that we did all this together. I mean, the guy threw a perfect game, a game in which no one else reached base. And he was like, hey, I'm glad you had my back on that. Yeah. And when you hear stories like that, part of you all been, I mean, it has to wonder, it's like, how real is this? Right. Is this what this person is actually like? And we're going to get to this a bit later with stories from some people who run into him. And I have my own, but it's genuine. I mean, that's how he was. And that's really rare for a superstar to just be that incredible a person. Mm-hmm. But I want to I want to go back a bit, too. So you, you mentioned 2007, right? Mm-hmm. When did you stop before that? I don't remember the answer to this. 1995 basically so the strike uh, yeah more or less the strike i went whatever i the, the last significant blue jays event i guess i remember was the mike soraka trade which i believe was in spring of 95 or 96 but i wasn't really following after that um, that was actually much later that was around 2000 but okay. uh that, that but that was the only i couldn't tell you anything that happened between the end of the 1994 strike and the mike soraka trade <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you know, there's not much that's memorable in that time. But well, actually, there's a few things. But one thing that's notable that I really think is important to talk about when you're talking about Roy Halladay, everybody left. You know, Jamie Key left for free agency to the Yankees. Now, that was partly because the Jays wouldn't give three-year deals to pitchers, but he did. Cone walked. Juan Guzman. Juan Guzman. He, yeah, he, well, he was sort of done at that point. But Clemens opted out of his contract because he wanted to leave. Roberto Alomar left, Sean Green, Al Leiter, Carlos Delgado was pushed out, so he's kind of the exception there, but everybody left. And Roy Halladay chose to stay. He signed extensions on a terrible team to stay for less money, and I don't really think you can overstate how much that meant, given all that had come before it. A superstar, the best pitcher in baseball. We've talked about this you know, earlier in this podcast. That he was just the guy for years. Decided, no, I want to make it work here. I'm going to bring us to the championship level instead of going to another team that's got a shot. I mean, if he wasn't cemented as your greatest favorite Blue Jay before that, that pushed it over the edge. Yeah, and, and that shaped the way Blue Jay fans thought about him all for his entire time here and probably why he got a pass on asking to be traded after it, it, it was apparent that it was never going to happen in Toronto while he was still able to you know, pick up a baseball. And I think that's we're going to talk later about the, you know, potentially the five greatest 
holiday starts that you might want to go try and find yourself to watch them again. And one of them is the return of AJ Burnett. Uh, AJ Burnett was, it was the perfect, you know, good guy, bad guy, you know, black hat, white hat um, matchup when AJ Burnett, because he did the Mm -hmm. exact opposite of what Halliday had done. He took the first chance to opt out and he went, he went to New York, the evil empire and got his money. And we literally never had to imagine Roy Halliday doing that. Yeah, and that's what made it so special. And I loved AJ Burnett. I've talked about this before because he was more like me than Holiday was. He was a <laughs> wild guy with good stuff. But you know, he did. He bailed. And you know, we'll, we'll talk about that game again in more detail. But that's that. That was just perfect. That was a perfect game, even though it wasn't a perfect game. So I will. We'll finish off this first section because I, I think. We, we do want to get to the interview and, and some of the stuff you guys had to add. Um, do you have a favorite quote or a favorite comment from a player about Roy Halladay? I'm just curious. Does one come to mind? Oof, geez, you definitely put me on the spot with that one. Yeah, I know. You know, it's funny. My favorite one, I don't remember the words, I'll be paraphrasing. Actually, it wasn't a positive one. Mm. This was after he was traded. There was an interview, I think it was on Sportsnet. It was Sean Markham, Roy, uh, not Roy Holiday, obviously, Sean Markham, Ricky Romero, Brandon Morrow, and I think Brett Cecil was the fourth. There were four of them on camera. And they basically talked about how now that Holiday was gone, they could relax. Mm-hmm. And as young pitchers, you get why that'd be important. But it also showed how much he pushed his teammates to be better. And the drive he had to make the team the best that it could be. So while they weren't exactly being showering him with praise about that, it still resonated as, yes, this guy really cared about winning and winning here. It's an interesting one. Um, so I will have to paraphrase as well, because I have looked for this quote before, because I've written articles about Halliday went on his retirement and, and different times, and I couldn't find this quote. I'm pretty sure it was Albert Pujols. Uh, but it could have been another hitter. Uh, it was at a time when Halliday was an all-star every year, and they were asking about, oh, who's the hardest pitcher in baseball to face, and why? And, of course, Roy Halliday had come up, and the the why was because every pitch starts in the same place and ends in a different place. <laughs> so and, basically, Albert Pujols introduced pitch tunnels, which became a baseball perspective stat. <laughs> yeah, uh, but... It was so significant that that was how incredibly deceptive he was to even one of the greatest hitters in the game. This idea that they really were guessing always about where that pitch was going to end up. And it was only by virtue of a bit of luck, perhaps, or, you know, just raw repetition that they would get good wood on the on the, the ball, which was, you know... That's Albert Pujols. That's a guy who walks a hundred times a year, like clockwork. You'd think you know where the ball was going. So I've always loved that quote about him. Yeah, your quote was better than mine. I didn't remember any quotes, so I just remember <laughs> one that stuck out. <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, as I said, we have an interview uh, with Scott Crawford of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. So we're going to go and uh, come back with him and talk about Roy's induction this year and uh, and what it was like to meet Roy Halliday. We'll be right back.
And uh, we are pleased to be joined by Scott Crawford of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. He's their Director of Operations. Scott, welcome to Artificial Turf Wars. Thank you. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, I am I'm doing quite well. Um, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, we were very saddened by the passing of Roy Halladay uh, yesterday. And uh, we, we know that you actually had him down for the induction uh, to the Canadian Hall in St. Mary's just this past summer. So I, I just, it, I'd invite you to, uh, to tell us if there was something, you know, about meeting Roy or a story that you had about him, um, it, you know, to remember him. Yeah, I think the greatest thing about Roy is, you know, when I first met him, we picked him up and, uh, you know, I talked to him on the phone before, but never met him. And he, one of the first things he did, you know, he put his hand out to shake my hand to say hello, big grin, smile on his face, and uh, and introduced me to his family, Braden and uh, and Ryan and his wife Brandy were all there with him, and and uh, he sort of was like, what can I do for you, you know, and help us? And I'm like, well, it's sort of the opposite, Roy. This is your big weekend, and and we're going to do everything for you this weekend. So um, it's just a unique, uh, very nice first experience with uh, you know someone I I watched as a as a fan for 15 years when he pitched. So you got that sense of humility from him right away. Yep. Yeah. It was just that sort of thing. You know, he was he was proud to be involved right when I called him in February and uh, and told him the great news, and then right through till uh, induction in June, he was um, extremely happy and looking forward to the big weekend. Now, on the weekend in question, how much did you have in terms of face to face with him? Uh, here. Here and there, I mean, the weekend, I run the whole weekend and look after the volunteers and all the activities and make sure it's uh, running smooth. So um, I'll, say quite, I'll say quite a bit, even though, you know, I, I got to make sure he's, he's in the right place at the right time and his family keeps busy because we drag him, you know, when he gets here, he's got a busy three days. And um, so you got to make sure their families are all happy and having a good time as well during the weekend. And, and uh, so there's a lot of, definitely a lot of interaction. So you did mention calling him in February when when he had been selected um, for the hall. Now the the Cooperstown Hall of Fame selection process may be the most contentious Hall of Fame process in all of sport. Uh, obviously, you you don't do things by polling writers in in the Canadian Hall. How do you decide who who makes the grade, so to speak, uh, for you you guys? Well, we get a pretty good process here. It's, uh, we have a selection committee that's spread across Canada. There's 24 members of the voting committee, and they're former players, uh, inductees, media, um, baseball historians, baseball executives. So we get a wide range of uh, different different baseball experts on our panel. And uh, it's it's a simple process. I mean, Roy was nominated. Uh, you have to wait three years after you're done playing. So he had to obviously mm-hmm. he had to be retired for three years. And then um, he was nominated. And then we... Um, we basically have a, a, a vote of conference call and then our final votes. And you have to have 75 percent of the ballot or of the vote and to be inducted. And, uh, and Roy obviously was uh, was a shoe in. So he, he was uh, one of our proud guys. I got to call in February. Now, obviously, Roy would fit both sides of this. But when you're trying to decide who gets in, is it more the best player who represented Canada or someone who had an impact on Canadian baseball in general? It's a little bit of both. I mean, um, and obviously he was born in the States, and um, the, the committee looked at 
you know, the, his stats are easy to find. Everyone, know, everyone knows baseball stats and can look them up. But so the committee looks at that part. But they also look at what uh, Roy did off the field, his charities he's involved with. Um, you know, how, how, what type of person he is. You know, is he a good person? Is he getting in trouble off the field? You know, that type of thing. So they look at all aspects of it. Um, and sometimes with some of the people, you have to dig a little deeper to find their what they're doing off on or off the field. But not with Roy. He was, uh, you know, all the tickets he bought for kids to come watch baseball games, and and uh, he was always involved. Yeah, I, I got a real sense that that he was. You know, an all-around um, good person, but also all all around good for baseball um, wherever he went. Um, which is why I guess you know this this makes us really sad, you know, to have to be talking about him in the past tense the whole time. Um, yeah, so you know, it it did come that that he did have the induction day um, in St. Mary's. Um, so what is you know, obviously, is there a speech same as as Cooperstown, or or what's the process for? Uh, for that yeah for the day of uh, the induction day it's it's uh it's it's similar i mean there's uh we hold a press conference in the morning uh for all the media to come and do the one-on-one interviews with uh with our inductees so that's a great opportunity for for the intimate conversation with them and of course this year is extremely busy i mean we also inducted vladimir guerrero Team Canada, Ray Carter, and Doug Hudlin, so it was a very busy induction year. Um, but uh, Roy, as you can imagine, was flooded with questions. And then it's the private lunch with the families, and then the induction ceremonies in the afternoon. We have it on our site. Uh, it's uh, it's about two-hour-long ceremony, which is pretty uh, nice. We try to keep it there. And Roy was the last one on stage. Um, he was the biggest name there, and, and we put him up on the stage last. And it was interesting because usually by the end of a ceremony in a hot summer day, people sort of leave the tent and, and wander off. But the tent was still full of the fans and the people there to see Roy, and they stuck it out right to the end, which, which tells you they wanted to hear what Roy had to say, which means they really like him as a player and a, as a person. You mentioned Vlad Guerrero and, and, and Roy being there at the same time, and it's kind of interesting. Do you find that, that maybe sometimes players uh, or, you know, baseball uh, people who haven't necessarily had a lot of time off the field get a chance to meet one another, and, and do you get to see any of that interaction? We did. It was it was unique. Uh, I mean, the because um, we inducted Team Canada, there were a lot of players as well that and coaches that were here that some of the coaches played with Roy, and, and uh, of course some of the players were were kids watching Roy uh, pitch during his his time in Toronto. So, but him and Vladimir chatted. You can see them off in the corner a few times talking. They only faced each other a few times in the big leagues, and uh, I, I think Vladimir won that but i'd have to check for sure but uh it was only a couple of bats so it wasn't too much of a competition and roy's roy's speech was kind of funny because he started off his speech talking about vladimir and how the how in the world you pitch to vladimir guerrero and basically he talked to you know you throw four balls and and try to pick them off first base he's such a good hitter there's no, you know there's no sense throwing a ball anywhere near the plate because he's going to crush it as we know how great of a player vladimir was but um you know you, it's good that way because some of these players you know uh you know, Vladimir spent time in the National League and when Halliday was in the American League, and then they sort of switched. Vladimir went to the Angels and, and Roy went to the Phillies. So they didn't uh, spend a lot of time together. But, you know, they're two amazing baseball players, spent more than a decade in the big leagues. And and uh, for them to, you know, you don't interrupt those conversations. You let just let those guys talk and, and, and do their thing because, again, they don't see each other often, but they both live the same life. 
Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a, an impressive meeting of the Canadian-ish stars. And when it comes to Howley, though, speaking of specifically the Canadian aspect of this, well, he, you mentioned he's from Denver. He never lived here, he lived in Tampa for a part of his, his time. He really seemed to identify not just with the Blue Jays, but with Canadian baseball. Was that a sense you got in during that weekend? Yes, it is for sure. I mean, he he was always a Toronto fan. The people loved him. He loved the city. He came back and retired from uh, from baseball, signed a one-day contract, and uh, became a Blue Jay before he retired. His his oldest son uh, was born in, in Toronto, and I think that weekend really showed it because there were so many blue jerseys uh, or blue Blue Jay jerseys um, in the crowd that uh, he could really tell how it how it affected him and, and what the people, what he meant to the people. You know, I, I see a lot of people online talking about how Halliday was often the only good thing about a otherwise kind of awful Blue Jays team. He kind of dragged them up to mediocrity all by himself. Um, do you think that that does, you know, move down to the younger generation? When people come to the hall, do you think they expect to see things about about Roy Halliday and about, you know, about the best players for for the Blue Jays, you know, to keep them fans? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, like you said, the Jays had a rough uh, few years when he was pitching there, and he was the superstar on the team. There were other good players, of course, but it was always Roy Halladay. You know, every fifth day, Doc was going to be on the mound and uh, winning winning a game for the Blue Jays, and that really uh, represented, you know, him and, and what people thought. They just expected him to win all the time, which is a lot of pressure, but he obviously held up to that pressure and, and did very, very well. With uh, with his wins and with his starts and his ERA, and I think that's uh, what people you know come to see. I mean, we have a display up there uh, now, and um, you know all summer it's been there, of course, and and everyone walks in and and you just start hearing the the Roy Halladay stories of when people saw him pitch. So for those people who have not been to St. Mary's to the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, what's what's the best time to come visit you guys? Well, we're open all summer, basically the baseball season, uh, May to October. And the, um, uh, the we have a 32 acre site with four baseball fields, uh, so there's there, we had about a thousand different events on our site this year on the four fields. They run from mid-April till end of October this year because the weather was really nice. Um, Induction is always near the end of June, July, and August are of course our busiest months with the tourism season. But um, it's it's a great little museum, jam-packed full of stuff. Uh, that you can spend, you know, some people zip through in half hour, 45 minutes. Some people are there two and a half, three hours because they're reading the plaques and and they're telling stories and they're listening to stories. And that's part of the neat thing about the museum is sometimes like my staff or myself are in there and, you know, and all we do is listen all day because baseball <laughs> is a storytelling sport. And uh, sometimes you can really learn a lot. And so it's pretty unique. That's that's good to know. Good to know. So uh, obviously, if you have uh, an interest in Roy Halladay and his exhibit, you can always go see that in St. Mary's this summer. Uh, if uh, if you have an interest in Canadian baseball in general, it's a great spot to stop, and uh, it's not too far away from Toronto if you're you know a Toronto centric folk, as some of our listeners are. So I'd like to thank you, Scott, for uh, for joining us, and uh, I wish you all the best. Perfect. I appreciate being on. Give me a call anytime. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, guys. Well, 
Well, that was a enlightening conversation with Scott, and uh, it's good that there is already a Hall of Fame that we find Roy Halladay in. Yeah, and hopefully there's going to be another one in a couple of years. But it's you know we talked about this before too, this humility and this desire to make sure everybody else is okay. He's asking the guy from the Hall of Fame if he can help him, as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, yeah. They, every story lines up with with you know Roy as as a really conscientious down-to-earth guy which is wonderful uh so of course we can't get through a roy holiday remembrance without some abject stupidity from the sports radio world and i thought we should address that before we move on to a more appropriate thoughts about roy um would you like to explain the boston sports media and how they are brain dead well i think you covered it pretty nicely with that one but there's a lot of you know, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it's you know, inflammatory and they always lean that way as opposed to the other. And today was no different. The We're not going to justify it with the name of the reporter or even the radio station because they don't deserve a mention. But you know, to, to go on, even if you believe it in the heart, in your deepest of your hearts, you believe that this is the case. The man died less than 24 hours ago. Like, don't say it out loud. Yeah. He he basically was out there saying that Holiday deserved it because he was flying a plane, which is just ridiculous. I mean, I, I, don't, know, I don't even know how you could believe that. And it just shows such a lack of class and just general human decency that it's hard to comprehend. It, it is. The, the idea that we, you know, we, we should or should not do certain things because they're reckless or they're potentially dangerous or whatever else. And to bring that up right after someone who was, you know, who clearly leaves a family behind and who are, there are people mourning for all over the place. I have no idea who that plays to or why you would say that. It's just ridiculous. So, Yeah, we're not going to give them a do-over like we normally would because they don't deserve one. It was easy to not have said that in the first place. So yeah, go yeah. fuck yourself. You could put it that way. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, ultimately, I'm still not going to listen to a lot of sports radio. <laughs> but <laughs> that made it a lot easier to decide. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, we do have... Some stories about Roy Halliday from you, our listeners. Uh, I would normally play the big question stinger at this point, but none of these are questions, so uh, I didn't have time to make up an appropriate intro. We're just going to go right into some of your your comments and stories. So we'll start with Brian uh, at big underscore b underscore sr, um, and he 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 does actually have a question. But so now what? He also commented that we should put an, a not safe for worse tag on this episode, not because of you uh, dropping F-bombs at the Boston radio media, but because people may start crying at, uh, at portions of this program. What now? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, it's very hard to answer that question. I was having a discussion with actually some people earlier today. It's like, uh, there's a piece I'm writing, and it's a big research piece. and I couldn't even open it today. Like I just didn't want to do this I, I, I think it just it didn't it wasn't in me today i don't know when that's going to return maybe tomorrow maybe a week from now but i didn't want to deal with anything else and there's there's legitimately a lot of processing that goes on 
Because I think what what happens and we don't realize it is is it's much like that quote um you know i spent the better part of my life gripping a baseball and then i found out at the end that it was the other way around the, the whole time we get involved with this this sport and the people in it and the things that happen in it and and if we are really serious fans we we don't realize that the depth of our involvement is kind of like a, a two-way street that we can't just decide not to be involved anymore. It's a it's a part of our our routine of our day, and when that's disrupted, I think everything is disrupted. Is it like losing a family member? No, but it's certainly like like a little slice has been cut out of your out of your day. Even though Roy Halladay was retired, that doesn't mean you didn't expect roy halliday to tweet or to show up at blue jays you know reunions or, or something else and knowing that that's not there that's a that's a real there's a significance to that absence yeah we we've lost a part of our history essentially is what has happened yeah so i guess my now what would be you obviously put roy on the level of excellence as soon as it seems pertinent um maybe you do more for him Maybe he does get the first statue that isn't of the owner of the team out in front of Rogers Center. I think that retiring his number is a reasonable thing. I mean, even if he was still with us, I think that that's both this level of excellence and retiring his number were things that should have been discussed. Yes, they've only done it for Alomar because he made the Hall of Fame. But Roy Halladay was Roy Halladay. I mean, he was the best pitcher. I'm sorry, Dave, Steve, but he was the best pitcher this team has ever had. And he was an ambassador for this team. He deserves it. Absolutely. So now we wait to see what the organization does, I guess. That's that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have a lot of control. So um, at our Leesum, Richard Leesum uh, had his story of Rogers. Uh, no, sorry, I'm reading too many words at once here. Of Roy Halladay. We went with our high school baseball team in grade 10 to a game during the week against the Angels. No biggie. It allowed our team and coaches the chance to scoop up a lot of tickets. The Jays weren't drawing well in 09, but still. We did what kids without our parents did. We ran around trying to sneak into the lower bowl. After no luck and an hour sneaking around, we sat back down in the bottom of the fifth. By that point, Doc had 7Ks. He ended up with a complete game and fanning 14 angels. What I remember most is that we weren't mad about missing the 7Ks. It was Doc. This was any regular start for him. That's how special every fifth day was. It's nice. I like that. It just again, it just shows how consistent he was. Consistently great. And- I, I do remember a start against the Angels where, and I, I'm, we've talked about this one before. I think he got into the eighth inning with a four nothing lead, and and it was against the Angels, and somehow they scored four off of him in the eighth and i thought oh my god like to go that far be perfect and now it's a tie game and you've just he must have thrown 30 pitches in that eighth inning i'm thinking he's got to be gassed every pitch i looked at him like is his arm gonna fall off and then he came out for the ninth and the jays scored another run (laughs) that was the end of that (laughs) we have talked about that one actually but it does ring a bell uh tory hunter they asked him after the game and he said doc did surgery on us tonight that was his his uh, summation of what had happened. Yep. It's, it's interesting, unfortunate segue. This is from 
from Will T at Gladverer Jr. You mentioned surgery, but he says, I'll never forget the game versus Texas in Arlington when Kevin Bench hit a comebacker and broke Doc's leg. He still had the presence of mind to come pick up the ball and throw Kevin out at first. People probably don't remember this that well. So people remember the holiday broke his leg. He took a bullet and then left the game. He was in the midst of his best season of his career. He was at a 241 ERA. He was going to start the All-Star game. Mm-hmm. They didn't even know. He like Heath showed nothing. People thought he just got a bruise and he might be out for a few days. And he was out for the season with a broken leg. He, the guy was just like, hey, I had to finish this. I had to make the play and, and get this guy out. There was no, oh, God, I'm hurt. I, 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 not that I would begrudge that. I mean, of course, it's a broken leg. But it was just unbelievable. So do you remember the game in Milwaukee, I believe, uh, where he got a line drive off the head and also didn't appear to have any ill effects from it? Yeah. It's... The ball pinged off of Roy Halladay's side of his head, floated over to Scott Rowland, who flipped it to first for the out. Uh <laughs> And then you could see, as they both came off the field, Halliday turned to Roland and went, what happened? Yeah. That was a contusion. Yeah. And I believe we have an email that you wanted to read. I did. I did. Uh, where are we? So, this uh, was from, and now I have misplaced his name. Uh, I apologize. It is Ryan Duthie. Um, so I, I will read highlights from this one because uh, it was quite a, a lengthy email. But uh, my wife was generous to purchase me an entry in the Jays Care Foundation golf tournament in 2008 for my 30th birthday. It was made even more special in that I ended up getting the, put in the foursome that included Roy Halliday. So then he goes on to talk about it a bit. Uh, and then he says... Um, the first thing that stood out was that at one point during the day, he stepped aside in the tee box to make a phone call. It was obvious he was calling his wife to check in. I remember him speaking to her and checking in on the kids, and then at the end saying, I love you. That's always stuck with me. And he also talks about uh, dinner that evening. He sat at our table, but it was amazing how many of his teammates just gravitated towards him to make jokes, to speak to him, whatever. He was obviously a leader in that group in his own quiet way. You could sense the respect. It was so clear just in that limited amount of time uh, who guys looked to. And he finished with, with, overall, I just left that day with the impression of, wow, that is a solid human being. To be the status he was, but yet so normal. All of that there is it is. super cool. Yeah. There's another part in there, too, about uh, reporters wanting to talk, or photographers wanting to talk, like, hey, talk to this other guy who just made this great shot. He didn't want to draw attention away from other people who did deserving things which again goes back to what we were talking about before this just really humble guy yeah and again this was another opportunity where you know you you might have expected a story to take a little turn where he did you know grab the spotlight or you know he he did brush somebody off or what and lo and behold he didn't he did what we're supposed we expect roy Halliday did every single time yeah he just did not deviate from that um, would you like All to read right. Ian's? Yep. This is from Ian Gray at I, Ian M. P. Gray. I have these memories of him getting drawn against Mark Burley repeatedly, which is funny because the two teams would only play a few times a year. 
and is always struck by how these two wildly dissimilar pitchers were both pitched in the crisp, smooth way. Just great games. For those of you who are concerned about pace of play, the greatest thing in the history <laughs> of baseball was a Mark Burley Roy Halladay start. Bar nothing. Didn't they have a game that finished in an hour and 47 minutes? Uh, it was, yeah, close to that. I didn't know it was an hour and 50. I know it was under two hours, which is absolutely impossible to do in modern baseball. Only the R.A. Dickey-Mark Burley combination would come anywhere close to that. But Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just the funniest thing well i mean so we're 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 talking about these these classic roy holiday games and it's not at the top of our list but there's a specific game and i think you know which one i'm talking about it happened in may of 2001 that was a mark burley against roy holiday game and that game took one hour and 50 minutes. That's what it was. <laughs> there it is. One hour and 50 minutes. You almost feel like you didn't get your full ticket value. <laughs> yeah, it's like, seriously, it's like, wait, did we have to make plans now for the rest of this game? For <laughs> this day? Uh, incredible. So we want to go yeah. with uh, Quinn? Sure. Who has not been, had not had his Beau Bichette uh, <laughs> at... <laughs> symbol claimed by twitter yet i guess bo has a different twitter handle um i watched my first mlb game when i was about seven years old like a lot of other kids i was just flipping through channels looking for something worthwhile to watch um he doesn't remember much more about that game but he says what i can remember is some guy named halliday completely dominating the opposing lineup with surgical precision that was unmatched by the opposing pitcher i remember the way the commentators raved about him and the way the crowd appreciated his dominance to be blunt I was in awe. Baseball has a reputation for just being some boring game where I'm from, but thanks in large part to Doc, I appreciate its beauty. His dominance was inspiring. I like to think of myself as having a decent handle on baseball analytics, and the first baseball-related strategy I can remember was both dependent on and usually executed because of Halliday's dominance. His trade from Toronto didn't deter me appreciating his greatness any less than I did before either. I remember sitting in a fat burger watching Halliday through a playoff no-hitter. I remember how important Halliday was to the otherwise mediocre Blue Jays teams of the 2000s and the Phillies' legion of aces in the early 2010s. I remember pitching in the backyard, pretending to be Roy Halliday, dominating the imaginary opposition, just as Halliday did in parts of 15 seasons. Thanks for introducing baseball to my life, Roy. Your greatness will never be forgotten. That's a nice, that's more than just like a favorite memory. That's just how baseball and Roy, sorry, Roy Halliday impacted Quinn. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I don't even think players realize that that they can do that. Like they, they, I don't know if they ever realize that they become someone else's idol, just like they had an idol when they were growing up. Yeah, and, and you know, I I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about that Roy Holiday start with Michael Young and when he was hurting. It reminded me of the, of Joe DiMaggio. Do you know the the story about him with the kid, the kids? Where he didn't want to not play because there might be some kid who was in the stands seeing him for the first time. Right. It's that same idea. It's like, no, I'm doing this for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And and now we're seeing this from Quinn's perspective, right? Yes. How they did this for him and how it can affect someone. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be like my hero on the ball field. And 
and every generation has those heroes and i'm sure there are thousands of people who looked at roy halliday and wanted to wear 32 or 34 and and wish they were him and that you know it's that's that's what sport does it's weird but cool yeah shall you give me the uh, comment from our next contributor from luke edwards at underscore ledwards I was in eighth grade about to enter high school at Arvada West, just finishing my weekly Little League game, and my dad asked if I wanted to watch the varsity team that was about to start. We watched Holiday throw a one-hitter. Unforgettable. That's pretty cool. This is like, it's a pre-memory of Roy Halladay. I mean, yeah, the guy got to see Roy Halladay in high school. Crazy. I can't, yeah, I mean, Luke, that's, that's pretty neat. I, I can't think of many people who who got the opportunity to do something like that. Yeah. And I mean, obviously proto holiday was just as impressive. There was, there was a comment on Twitter the other day that he stood up in front of his grade three teammates on the school bus one day and said, I'm going to be a major league pitcher. And nobody laughed because everybody thought, well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yep. People recognize the greatness. Uh, our last comment from a listener is from, uh, Premit, Premit Bose 85. Um, he just a, a moment that he remembered he threw a disgusting curveball to tory hunter hunter swung and missed and started laughing he had no chance he knew he had no chance to hit it was this from that game we were talking about earlier you know it could have been at that point <laughs> i'm not tory hunter played a long time so you know it, it could have been one of many times uh yeah i think there were a lot of times where pitchers i the only batter who does it now is um Miguel Cabrera, who will simply wink and nod at the at the pitcher when he gets him. Like, oh, that was a good one. I was thinking about that too. He's definitely the guy. It's like, ah, oh, he'll nod at you, shake his smile at you. It's like, yeah, you got me on that one. That was good. Don't throw it there again. Or <laughs> <laughs> Holiday would, and he'd get him out. Mm-hmm. Because you wouldn't know. You just never knew with Holiday what was going to happen, and and you didn't know. I don't even know if we talked about this really, but you didn't know for nine innings. You know, you knew he was wanted to come back out there for all nine. And that idea, the idea that a pitcher could even be dominant for nine innings now is done. Yeah, it doesn't happen. The, the, what, the prevailing baseball wisdom right now is, is it's not worth the third time through the order penalty. You know, it gets so much harder when a guy sees you for the fourth time. Or third time even. And now it's, yeah. you know, so there, there's no impetus from the analytics community to ever have a guy who would even dare to try and throw that much. You might lose the game. And yeah, right. we, because of that, we may never see another Roy Holiday. Yeah. And it's, I know the game changes, but that's, you know, it's not just that there isn't a Roy Holiday. It's that there's now an obstacle to him ever being there. But we should talk about the five what we think are the five greatest in no particular order, Roy Halladay starts of all time. So we will start with October 6th, 2010, the playoff no-hitter. Is this... So, your, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so here's the thing. I actually didn't see this one live. This... Because... The, believe ahead. it or not, this is the only no-hitter... I have tuned into from the very first pitch to the very last. I saw the last play of the game live. 
because I was on the West Coast and this play this game was an afternoon game for me. And I couldn't watch it. <laughs> so when I got out, there were two outs in the ninth. And I was like, oh, this is going pretty well. And then it's like, wait, they flashed it up. It's like they, the, the announcers said something. It's like he's one away from nowhere. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> this is, hang on. I suddenly feel very bad for you for some reason. Yeah, well, it happens. But So I was going to make this my final thought, but I'll bring this up now. Um and we'll talk about this again with another one of these games, but I wrote a piece about this today too. I had trouble rooting for a holiday when he was with the Phillies. Not because I wanted him to not do well. I, I did. I, I was very happy for him when he threw the perfect game, which we're going to get to. And in this game, when he threw a playoff no hitter, but I didn't like it because he was supposed to be doing those things in Blue Jays uniform. Okay. It was, it was, it was, it was just hard for me. Yeah, exactly. And that's basically what I wrote. It's like he was ours. He was he was he's supposed to be a Toronto guy. And I'm not supposed to be seeing him throw these in a red jersey. And that actually lasted through the end of his career. And I really had a lot of trouble with Roy Halliday doing well elsewhere. And now it's not that I didn't I wasn't happy for him. I was. I lo- I love that he had that moment, but I didn't enjoy it. I did not have that problem because I, no, I, and I, I just personally, I felt he'd really paid his dues in Toronto more than any player should really have to. And it was not about him at all. It wasn't me being angry at him. Like I said, I was happy for him. I just didn't, I wasn't happy about it. If that makes any sense. And I regret, you know, looking back, I, that was silly. And I regret that. Like I, I would love to go back and watch these with fresh eyes and be like, holy crap, this is amazing. But for some reason I didn't feel that then. And it's kind of, sad <laughs> so in that playoff no hitter i think it it i know it comes up from time to time but to me it gets glossed over how far away was he from a perfect game in the playoff no hitter you're gonna have to tell me you watched the game <laughs> yeah i watched it and i couldn't believe it when we got to the end because on a 3-2 pitch in like the fourth or fifth inning he walked someone that was the only batter to reach base there were no errors he struck out like 10 so he was literally one strike away from a perfect game. Unbelievable. I mean, that would have been his second perfect game in a calendar year. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> it's just like, whoa. I think we need to talk about this in general, not the perfect game aspect, but this is a guy who for, I guess he was in his like 12th year of his career at this point. All he wanted to do was pitch in the postseason. He wanted to do it for Toronto, but in general, he wanted to pitch in October. And then in his first game, he throws a no-hitter. How crazy is that? Like If you wrote that in a story, people wouldn't believe it. No, he ended the can-he-handle-the-pressure conversation at the absolute first opportunity. <laughs> yeah, with a few bullet points. Yeah, like, and there you go. Don't ask me any questions about that. All right, so that was the playoff no-hitter, October 6, 2010. Definitely worth watching again. Again, you can watch for that one errant fourth ball that uh, ruined the perfect game. May 29th, 2010, though, there was no fourth ball or error or anything else. That was a perfect game. Yeah, and, and, and I shouldn't have included this in what I was saying before. This one I could enjoy because this was just a regular season awesome thing. And it was Roy Halladay being the best in the world and everyone getting to see it. That I loved. Because it was a freaking perfect game. 
was the 20th perfect game in major league history uh if i'm not if i'm recalling correctly was it one nothing I don't remember the actual score, but I can find it very quickly for you. I believe it was versus Josh Johnson. And yes, it was it was one nothing. And yeah, 11 strikeouts. So the reason why I thought that was a significant as well as being a perfect game was one mistake and Roy Halladay could have ended up with a no decision in the greatest game of his life. Yeah. And, and also just, you know, you're talking about one mistake and he could have had the no decision. But the degree of difficulty, right? I mean, you throw a perfect game in a 10 nothing game, it's still a perfect game. I guess. <laughs> Let's not take away from that. But you know, there's no pressure at the end of that other than the perfect game. You know, If you make a bad pitch here and there, oh, well, you lost that. If you made a bad pitch, you could lose the game. Yeah, because <laughs> like, they didn't score in the first for him, I don't think. It took a while. Yeah, they scored a run in the third. But even so, it's like, you throw a bad pitch, it could be a bomb, and then you could lose this ball game. And you know, for Roy Holly, there'd be nothing worse than that, right? Yeah. Losing the game. So our next game is what I call the most Roy Holiday start of all time. Uh, September twenty six, September six, sorry, two thousand and three. He threw ten innings on ninety nine pitches and got himself a shutout, which is called a Maddox technically, but as I've said before. 10 innings, it should just be called a holiday. <laughs> Absolutely. So here's a fun one for you. He threw the shutout. You may have seen this earlier, so it might be cheating, yep. but you must have. But I did. he's the only one who's even thrown a 10-inning complete game in under 100 pitches. That's pretty cool. Now, this is since pitches have been tracked, so we have no idea. Like back in 1907, it might have happened. But <sighs> since baseball started tracking this stuff and people actually would raise pitch counts as a strategy, he's the only one. So, yeah, ruthlessly efficient and incredibly unhittable. What what a wonderful combination. Um, again, remember, despite like striking out more than 200 people five different occasions and walking less than 40 on those same seasons, he was never trying to strike anyone out. Nope. And just before we move on to the next one, here's another little fun fact. So he threw that 10-inning shutout. The game before that, and then the two subsequent ones, he threw he threw complete games in all of them. Four straight complete games in which he gave up a total of one earned run. Just in case you had forgotten how good Roy Halladay could be. It was the greatest stretch of pitching I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anything like it before or since. And that says something, because we've, we've been watching for many years and many games, and, you know, even... Max Scherzer has come close, I think, lately. Um, but yeah, to finish everything is the incredible part. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to talk about the showdown. Uh, I was talking about this game earlier with AJ Burnett. The evil Yankee black hat guy comes back into Toronto to face Roy Halladay in his white hat, protecting his town. <laughs> it was really, it was just a regular season matchup. So, in that sense, it was very overblown. But symbolically, it was the biggest game in Toronto in I don't know how long. 15 years? I mean, it was 2008. Or no, 2009. So, it was huge. And it, okay, so I was at this game, and this was the most fun I've ever had at a baseball game up until 2015. Because I don't remember what it was like as a kid, and I wasn't at the World Series games. But... The atmosphere was so crazy in there. It was loud and boisterous from the first pitch. Everyone booing Burnett. 
And then Halliday, he carried a no-hitter into the seventh. Yeah. The Halliday knew how to do a statement game, didn't he? <laughs> he really did. The guy knew how to put on a show. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, AJ, you could go. I don't care what happens. You give up a run, you're losing. Just awesome. And the fact that so badly, everybody wants the, to beat the opposing team. But so badly did people want to, to, to let A.J. Burnett know that he was a loser who made the wrong choice. Like, like A.J., I don't think, was nearly as invested as, as the people in Toronto. But it was a great opportunity to do that. Yeah, it was just fun. And this, so the next one you're going to talk about, we've mentioned before, but this Burnett game was my favorite Blue Jays game pre-2015 ever. I loved it. And... Then we will get to game five, like you said. Uh, the fifth greatest holiday start was a win, but it doesn't have the aura, I guess, in a lot of cases that uh, all these other starts, because everything else we're talking about was a shutout. This was the second game of Halliday's career. It was the eighth and two-thirds innings of no-hitter, as you mentioned previously. And then Bobby Hinkinson ruined the no-hitter and the shutout with one swing of the bat by hitting a home run. Yeah, that was depressing <laughs> freaking bobby higginson just killed the jays i don't I don't know how that happened but I, and i actually felt it was weird like i think i've said this on the podcast before i remember predicting that home run just because i hate i just couldn't have nice things but it was incredible because it, this was around the time when i was old enough to be aware of prospects like i remember alex gonzalez and delgado before they came up and eddie zosky randomly but where Halliday was a guy that's like, oh, this guy's supposed to be a star. You know, he's going to be a star. And it's like, well, we've heard that before. And then, oh, my God, he's a star. Yeah. And you're at the game right yeah. there in front of him. Uh, that's pretty crazy. So those are our top five in no particular order. Greatest Roy Halliday starts ever. So that brings us, if I'm not mistaken, to the part where I ask for a final thought, but you have already given me your final thought, haven't you? Did you, do you, did you do the thing that you do sometimes come up with another final thought? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's well, my job. We mentioned this earlier. We, the we were talking about thought. <laughs> the penultimate thought about the ultimate guy, but uh, we were talking about times where we've met him or people who have stories about him. I've never really met him except for one very brief moment. And it was in spring training in, uh, early 2000s. It was after he'd come back from the minors. And he was just there, just signing autographs for hours and hours. Yeah, there must have been a huge line of things. And he was talking at least a few seconds, and this included me, to every person there. It wasn't just give me your ball and sign it next person. It was a quick conversation. A, Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for coming out. And it was just amazing. Roy Halliday, still the real deal. So my final thought is actually a couple of tweets from Dan Heron. Um, and the one says, it's a picture of a holiday jersey. And uh, it says, I only own like five signed jerseys. And I was so scared to ask him. Now, this is Dan Heron, veteran Major League Baseball pitcher. Scared. Really good. Yeah. Scared to ask Roy Halladay. He said he wrote that he liked watching me pitch. What an honor. And you can see it says, Dad, I always enjoyed watching you. Uh, you're a winner. <laughs> Did you say Dad? <laughs> no, Dan. I always enjoyed watching you. It looks like you're a warrior. 
Then he's his signature, and then he's got All Star eight times, AL Cy, NL Cy, <laughs> and the, the dates. Whole bit. And the dates, just to <laughs> remind you. But the tweet before that from Heron at iThrow88, if you don't follow him, just says, I wanted to be Roy Halliday. I'm heartbroken. Rest easy, Doc. And I think in a lot of ways, a lot of us would have liked to be Roy Halliday, um, at least as good a person as he was and as good at what he did as we are at what we do. So on that note, Roy, rest in peace. We'll miss you. And this has, this has been episode number 80 of the Artificial Turf Wars. I've been Greg Wisniewski. You have been Josh Housem. And we'll talk at you in a couple weeks.